Welcome to Dream Maker, a podcast brought to you by First National Bank of Syracuse. At FNB, we strive to make sure that every life we touch is improved. Join us for each episode as we cover a wide range of topics, from financial wellness and marketing to mental health and ways to enjoy life overall. We may even teach you a thing or two about cultivating healthy soil. We are here to improve your life and so glad you've joined us today. Now, here are your hosts for today's episode of Dream Maker. Hi, this is Chris Floyd, President and CEO of the First National Bank, and welcome to season number two of our DreamMaker podcast. Uh, this season, you know, we're really focusing on our vision, which is every life we touch is improved. And, you know, I think every podcast topic we're going to you know, like how do we help a variety of things? One, you as an individual or your farm or business be more successful and avoid some of the pitfalls that could be coming or coming this way. Uh, too, and how, how do we help our communities grow and prosper? And, you know, for us, it's not really a part of, you know, we can kind of, you know, we're not here to try to hang on and to survive. We're here to thrive. So all our topics can be kind of based off that. So we look forward to bringing you a great set. This week, we are starting season two, where we started season one, talking about some grain marketing opportunities. Uh, uh, so we have two really good guests with us. Uh, Walt Beasley's with Farmers Business Network. Uh, Walt's been a good friend of ours for a long, long time. And same with Brett Kratz. You know, Brett's with Sweet Renique there out of Garden City. Um, kind of Sweet Renique goes way back with us, especially back in our, um, you know, original start in Syracuse, you know, way back when we had Sweet Renique brokers uh, working uh, in an office in the bank. And, you know, we realized being able to market that grain has been a big, important part of making your business successful. So we've had a lot of calls um, with customers and prospects talking about um, how do I market grain in multiple years? So they did a really good job of putting some things together, what things we should consider of why or how, and you know what's the pitfalls and what things we want to do. So they did a really good job with that. And so make sure too, as we go along that, you know, there's other topics that you think like, wow, I need to know more about that to be more successful in my business operation and personal life. Make sure to reach out to us and follow up and, and we'll work on uh, trying to get some good education put together. And that's kind of kind of what we believe in and driving. So with that, here we go this week. About this time of year is, uh, is uh, harvest is starting, especially our dryland corn around and guys are, I think, waiting for rain probably to get some wheat drilled. And so I know it's a busy time of the year, but sometimes it seems like those busy times of years when we have our best opportunities and uh, seems ones uh, we don't want to be able to miss uh, something that uh, may not come right back at us uh, very quickly. So so with that, uh, we're going to get started. Uh, thanks to everybody coming today. So we got uh, um, kind of our experts. We got Matt Bennett. He's our senior leader there in Garden City. My name is Chris Floyd. I'm the CEO of the First National Bank. So Glad to have everybody. And uh, so we got two guests. One, the first one, I'll let him introduce himself, Walt Beasley with Farmers Business Network. I'll give you, let you give you a little. All right. Uh, my name is Walt Beasley. I'm with uh, Farmers Business Network. I've been with them the last three years. Prior to that, I spent the last 24 with Cargill. I reside down at Hugoton, Kansas. So very familiar with production in Southwest Kansas and marketing in this area. 
Okay. Then also our other expert we have is Brett Kratz. He's uh, runs Sweetermany there in Garden City. So I'll let you introduce yourself there, Brett. Uh, my name is Brett Kratz. I've been with uh, Schwederman Inc. now for, I think it's 19 years, uh, getting pretty close to 20. Um, I went to K-State to have a degree in Ag Econ. I've been involved in agriculture forever. So uh, this is this is my favorite thing to do. All right. And the good thing is, like, you guys made everything go up today, I think, right? Or everything really need to go up. So uh, we're pretty close anyway. So a lot of stuff a lot of stuff so we'll give you guys give, give you credit for that uh we'll start walt's going to talk us through it through some of the grain deal and then uh has some, he had some slides to share and then brett had some other stuff on the economy and input costs and so we'll let you uh, turn i do want to thank first national bank and and uh, both chris and matt for the opportunity to to share with you guys uh, like i said uh, we're i work for, with fbn on the crop marketing side our advisor um, Kevin McNew is our chief advisor. He's an Oklahoma State grad. And we don't hold that against him. Um, and the rest of us, a lot of K-Staters as well. The biggest thing in the markets right now and most recently is USDA put out their crop uh, world estimate uh, last Friday. And the thing that we saw in there that's most bearish is the they increased corn acres and also increased corn yields. They, they tweaked a few things on the beans, a uh, little bit on the wheat, but then also on Milo, they increased uh, grain sorghum planted acres by 800,000. Um, a lot of the bigger analysts didn't pick up on that or, or necessarily uh, publicized it, but it's pretty big for our area. And that, that actually matched in with our June 30th uh, farmer surveys that came in. We actually had corn acres up a little bit. Uh, we were one of the few that had uh, soybean acres as low as, as we did. Um, and with this report, we nearly nailed that Milo acres. So uh, that, that was good to see that the participation within our network, that we were able to get uh, those kind of numbers and be able to report it back to our members. Um, some of the things that came out of that uh, report, we see 10 states potentially going to harvest record yields. And, and that's a pretty key states. Illinois, Indiana uh, are, are leading that. And we're just about four tenths being able to set a national yield average. So even though there's some drought areas, there are some areas that, that are going to be hurt, we're still going to have a really big corn crop. And that's one thing that we differ with USDA on. We're about four bushels an acre lower in our yield estimates, but it is still really early to, to be able to nail those yield numbers down. Our data today is not any better than uh, anyone else's. But as we get into harvest and as our members start sending in yield data, we're going to be able to tweak that number. Um, some of the thing, the, the yield number is the biggest difference that, that FBN currently has with where USDA is on, on their numbers. Um, you know, a little bit on exports. Uh, I think looking forward, as if, if we continue to see the U.S. dollar strengthen, uh, exports could be one that that uh, could come into question just because we're not going to be competitive in, in the world market. Um, looking out into to 2022 and the opportunities there, uh, we're already seeing a year ago at this time when we looked at DC 21 corn, it took 60 bushels of corn to equal one ton of urea at 
or what we call NOLA down at the at New Orleans. Today, if we look at 2022, it takes 105 bushels of corn to equal the price of one ton of nitrogen. So we are going to see expenses going up in next year. And it's going to be some opportunities for profitability. But uh, as Chris and I talked to or talked right before this webinar, is you can lock in or be able to really well estimate somewhere probably 70% of your total cost for your 2022 crop. When you start looking at your land costs, what irrigation costs are going to be, uh, your cost of equipment, labor, a lot of those costs can already be penciled out. Yes, inputs, we don't know what that fertilizer is going to be in the spring, but there, there's already enough room in there margin-wise that you might be able to lock in some profits. Uh, a couple other things along corn. One thing to really keep in mind, China is sitting on over two-thirds of the world's carryout. And what's the quality of that, those stocks that they have? They've been in there for years. And why are they out in the world market buying corn if they're really sitting on that kind of reserve? It could be a combination of different things. One, the quality may not be there or the quantity, uh, but also they have changed their hog herd. It's moved from being a backyard, you know, one or two sows and they're feeding table scraps to more of an industrial commercialized feeding operation. So once you have those hogs in confinement, you have to have grain. You're, you can't just feed them table scraps anymore. So they have built a more robust industry, but it is going to require more grain moving forward. So that demand piece is always something to, to keep in mind. Looking at it more locally, uh, corn basis, uh, we're still well above uh, historical averages. This is looking at uh, a 10-year average, and we're 22 cents above what would across the state of Kansas. When, now, with that being said, we want to look at it more localized. And basis has been under pressure the last uh, week or two, and I think it's going to continue to be under pressure with the current weather conditions that we have. When we have a, a hot, fast harvest, that's going to put more pressure on elevators to get it unloaded and more bushels moving towards the elevator versus the end users, the feedlots, the, the seaboards, the ethanol plants being able to consume as higher percentage of that crop. When you have a long drawn out harvest, a bigger percent of that crop could end up in the end user. So uh, keep an eye on that corn basis. It's, it's starting to uh, weaken just slightly um, and, and it's gonna be more weather-based. The, the dry land crop, uh, is mainly already come off or coming off really, really quickly. Um, so that, that's not going to be the pressure. It's going to be that, that irrigated crop. And please throw questions into chat and uh, Chris will share them as we go through there. Um, we're going to run through this fairly quickly just so that um, give more opportunity for discussion at the end. So moving to beans. Uh, not going to spend a lot of time on there. We're not, we don't have a lot of bean production uh, in this region, but here again, USDA has 10 states with record yields and Illinois and Indiana being at the top of that list. Um, we're really close in line with what USDA has in their numbers, both from uh, a yield standpoint and acres wise. One of the things that we do uh, question a little bit is going to be the amount of crush. 
And moving forward, not only for this next year, but moving forward, uh, so much of the soybean oil is going to move into the biodiesel and that realm continues to grow. We're seeing some of the big oil companies come in and start getting involved in the biodiesel side. Um, you know, locally, it's, it doesn't necessarily will run bean oil, but from a biofuel standpoint, the seaboard plant at uh, uh, Seaboard Energy at Huguenin, they're going to be a biodiesel plant. So we're excited and we're keeping a really close eye on, on that part of the business. Here again, China is the big player. And I think it's important to remember that just in the last 20 years, China has increased their imports 10x. And I don't, I don't see that being sustainable moving forward that they grow another 10x over the next 20 years, but they're the 800 pound gorilla in the room and they're really dictating what could happen in our grain markets. We're seeing them start to sneak in and buy, you know, a couple of cargoes every day, um, but it still feels like they're maybe a little bit, they feel like they're a little bit behind where they uh, need to be over the, uh, uh, from what their needs are gonna be. Moving on to wheat. We're fairly neutral on wheat right now as our outlook until we get to that uh, USDA's uh, September 30th um, report. It's going to be interesting to see with this higher fertilizer uh, price outlook if we see more wheat acres go in. Um, there, there are definitely some areas of concern when you're talking about wheat up in the, in the spring wheat country that has had some spillover into the hard red winter wheat. Uh, there is somewhat of a substitute, but the quality of that wheat coming off is better than expected. I mean, there's a lot of 15 pro. Uh, so even though it may be a smaller crop quantity wise, the quality's there. So um, if normally they'd have come off with a 13 or a 13 and a half pro wheat, now it's 15, you know, it takes um, less of that in a blend with hard red winter wheat to be able to meet a lot of those bakers. Uh, a needs. The other thing I think, um, at least here locally, we did see a lot of wheat get fed. Um, and I, I'm not sure how well that is going to be reflected in, in the current USDA numbers. It still seems uh, a little bit light. I mean, they, they've got 60 million above last year. Um, and that probably would, I, it's hard to tell how much wheat actually got fed. And USDA is going to have a hard time pegging that number. Looking at it across the world, we had did have quite a bit of production issues. Uh, Russia is definitely um, way down and they're the largest exporter uh, in the world. They have a competitive advantage getting to the biggest uh, importer, Egypt. They just have to cross the Black Sea, get across the Mediterranean. But there are some other people in that region that will be able to cover that needs when you look at Ukraine and, and Europe, they both had really good crops. Canada, um, this doesn't have the StatCans numbers from this morning in there. Actually, they, they took the spring wheat down even a little bit more. So that production number is actually uh, more than that. Uh, and they're mainly uh, spring wheat. So that's gonna compete uh, the Russian uh, wheat and some out of the US. So. We're not going to see uh, Canada out there uh, exporting like we normally would. Argentina was off to a really slow start, but they've picked up some rains. And when you look, look at the world, yes, 
ending stocks have decreased, but we still have really uh, high stock values in, in the world. India is going to step in and I think export quite a bit this year. And normally they, they're an importer. The thing that's going to keep the U.S. from being competitive is our, our, our dollar. We're, we're overpriced in the world market. Um, you can see where Argentina, Australia, and Russia fall into that. And Russia is going to be someone that we have to contend with for years to come. When Putin took over, Russia imported wheat. And that was one of the things that he really laid out and said, we, we can't be a country that imports our food. We're going to have to produce and be able to feed our own people and export. So he made it a priority. And now Russia is the largest exporter in the world. I think China may uh, learn from that somewhere down the road, but I don't anticipate it anytime soon. But that's going to keep, from a wheat perspective, Russia, their quality has improved in the last mm, 10 years, uh, but also the, the quantity. It used to be the major uh, importers of quality wheat would always come to the United States. Now they've found other people or other countries be able to produce similar quality. And the world knows that the U.S. is going to be, have the residual value. We still have the bins. We still have quality. It's not like we're going to actually run out of wheat. You may have to pay for it, but the U.S. is going to have it. Um, switching gears real quick to hit sorghum. Uh, Milo acres, like I said, we're up 700,000 uh, acres. And we see that production is actually going to improve uh, year over year. Uh, and that's actually on a, on a lower yield than what we had a year ago. Exports are still gonna be well above average. Um, you see the last time that we had those high of over uh, 300 million bushels of exports were back in uh, 14 and 15 when China was buying. And that's what we saw the, these last two years. China is buying Milo because of it, it does not fall under the TRQ, the tariff rate quota. Um, both for beans and corn, there, there is a quota level that once imports exceed that, there's a tariff slapped on it. And that's why we've seen the higher price of sorghum. If you take the value of corn in China, less um, the tariff and use a 90% value, that's basically where we've been at on our Milo prices. So we've been the benefactor of those tariffs being applied by the Chinese government or those people that are raising sorghum. But it, China's demand is definitely in question. And we've seen that in the basis uh, here locally. We were started off the year on some really, really high basis levels for this fall. And just over the last, you know, since the 1st of August, we've, we've seen that basis level start to deteriorate. And we're st starting to get back into that range that's more of a normal uh, that we would see. So what I'm encouraging producers to do, if you could still get a Milo value, a basis level above that of corn, uh, would highly recommend go ahead and laying that risk off and not uh, be at the risk of the Chinese. Because the, the Chinese, like I said, still 800 pound gorilla. When we looked at sorghum that they've imported, it's still minute compared to corn or to beans. Um, we have seen them start importing some wheat this year, which is highly unusual. 
they're sitting sitting on over 50% of the world's stocks, uh, very similar to what we were seeing in corn where they're sitting on two thirds of them. Uh, but it, I really question why they would import wheat unless they're, they're, they're needed. So with that, I think, uh, yep. I have a quick disclaimer. Anytime you're trading commodities involves risk of losing money. And I, I'll leave that to, to Brent to decide. So with that, uh, if there are any questions out there now, I'll go ahead and answer them. If not, I'll throw it back to, to Chris or Brent. Okay, so I don't see any popping up at the moment. So Brett, I'll let you get started and kind of the stuff you have prepared for us. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, everybody see that big yep, logo? Yes. All right. Well, that's who I am and that's where we are um, here in Garden City. Okay. Um, Walt touched on uh, input costs, and uh, one of the things I look at uh, in marketing, in markets in general, are uh, uh, fear and greed. And right now, what I'm fearing are those input costs. So uh, this is by no means a comprehensive list, but these are some of the commodities that have made multi-year highs in the last six months. Uh, we know about corn, wheat, beans, and oats. Uh, sugar is in that group. Uh, coffee is in that group. And orange juice, uh, those three are somewhat related in that uh, uh, weather in Brazil has impacted those markets along with the soybeans and the corn, uh, the drought and freeze issues that they've had all impacted those. Uh, crude oil, we've seen a resurgence in. Uh, that's made multi-year highs recently. Natural gas has been quite strong. Uh, nickel, um, some of the base metals have, have been uh, incredible performers, uh, big moves in those. Uh, lumber, lots of people have heard about the lumber prices moving up. And lots of people have heard about the lumber prices moving back down, uh, very, very violent moves. Uh, copper, palladium, feeder cattle, hogs, aluminum, lead, iron, zinc, uh, tin, rhodium. Uh, that's one of my favorite ones to watch. Uh, rhodium fits in with palladium and platinum for use in uh, uh, catalytic converters and other catalysts. It, it, it's, it's fascinating. Moved up to nearly $30,000 an ounce at one point this year. Uh, beef price uh, has moved to uh, some extreme levels this year. Not necessarily cattle prices, but beef. And then the uh, world vegetable oil market has been pretty incredible. I should have probably put palm oil in here too. Uh, canola and soybean oil have been strong. And then uh, coal is also uh, moved, moved to very high levels. Uh, one of the things I like to do is look at this list and then like uh, draw lines between different ones and see what you can make. One of my favorite ones is uh, the iron ore, zinc, and copper. If you get those three, that's what it takes to make a irrigation system. And we certainly use a number of those. I mean, it, it, that, that's the things that we have to fear, I think, right now now is if we continue the trends in some of those products, uh, there, there's just there's just little doubt that we're going to have increased costs of pretty much any kind of input. 
Um, earlier today, I got a text from a customer. Uh, he was glad to see some green on the uh, screen with the grains. And, you know, his comment was, well, I, I hope that the grains are going up because glyphosate went up 21% overnight. So that that's the kind of things we're we're dealing with. Now these are some of the the even more of the top performers, I guess, uh, things that have made new all-time highs in the past year. Uh, gold and palladium are on that list. The lumber, the iron, iron ore, rhodium I mentioned, beef, uh, the vegetable oils, and then coal. Uh, once again, um, you take. Those products, particularly the iron ore and coal, and it's hard to do much in, in our economy without those two things. Um, so then here is the uh, Goldman Sachs Commodity Index. Uh, this is basically just a basket of commodities. And you can see, obviously, that we've come up from the uh, 2020 lows. And commodities in general have been strong. But we are by no means uh, near the highs on this index. Uh, we're barely getting out of the last five years range. Um, we're not really in the top half of this chart. So we've seen a lot of commodity strength. We've seen a lot of uh, gains in these markets. So why, why is the pool or the basket not at all-time highs? Well, there's still a few things that are, uh, that are cheap in the world. Uh, platinum is is a a dog. Um, you know, I mentioned the rhodium and the palladium. Uh, platinum has not kept pace with those uh, markets at all. And recently, the the car production problems around the world because of chip shortages have just killed the the platinum group metals. So, things that are relatively cheap: platinum, silver, cotton. Uh, wheat is still uh, relatively cheap compared to the uh, all-time highs. And then uh, the big one that I guess I'm worried about is the energy markets. Uh, we have seen strength in the energy markets, but uh, none of them can we call high. And I guess that's that's one of the things that I think producers need to be aware of is that we have seen strength in the energies, but uh, we we could potentially see a lot more. Uh, this is a monthly crude oil chart. It looks really, really weird because we have that anomaly of the uh, negative prices from 2020. Uh, kind of screws up our chart a little bit. Uh, but the thing I want you to take away from this is we're we're back to testing the 2018 high, uh, but we spent years over 100. Uh, right now, we're struggling with the resistance between 70 and 75. Um, 70 to 75 is not high. It's still uh, about half of our all-time high. So that leads me to believe that there there could be a lot of uh, upside potential in the crude oil market, and we don't know if that's going to come from a supply-side issue or a demand issue. Uh, but the point is there is that potential. If you look at the uh, heating oil, the big uh, red line there is essentially a, a it's essentially a ten year average. So we're we're at a ten year average. Uh, we are not high. We are no longer low. Which uh, the 2020 low uh, that that was 
that was low. Uh, that was uh, going back to the uh, terrible commodity times of the early 2000s when everything was basically cheap. Uh, we've recovered from that pretty rapidly. Uh, but once again, the point is I want you to see that we're not high and we have the potential to move higher. Now, this is uh, U.S. total fuel demand, um, and that, that means unleaded uh, distillates like diesel and ethanol. Uh, the red line from 2020 dips off the chart into very terrible territory, uh, lack of demand from the COVID, um, and then this year is the black line. Uh, we've had a tremendous recovery. Uh, we've had some exceptional uh, demand weeks. The data is always goofy. It, it goes up and down and up and down and up and down. It, it's very strange that it's not a little smoother, but that's the way the data is presented to us. The point is we do have uh, a much, much better demand outlook uh, for fuel than we did uh, a year ago. Uh, we, we are seeing recovery in the economy. We are seeing people moving, things moving, products moving. Um, so <clears throat> we, I think we, we were in good shape on the demand side. Uh, any kind of supply hiccup can uh, definitely put some strength into the energy markets. Uh, this is our monthly natural gas. Uh, so we made fresh uh, seven-year highs uh, today. Uh, okay, so seven-year highs, where does that get us? Well, it doesn't get us very far on the chart. I mean, we spent years above seven, or at least spending a lot of times above seven. So being at five to five and a half is really, once again, it's not high. I mean, we got cheap, uh, you know, $1.75 gas, uh, you know, several months back was was cheap, um, and I think it, it's got to be on the radar of irrigators to either be doing something uh, to protect themselves uh, from another upward movement because I, people that I deal with do remember uh, 2005 and 2006 when we were in the teens. And what uh, what they were fearing their gas bills were going to be, uh, and the next chart here, this this is our storage numbers. So we're running uh, below average, but we're it's not like we're outside of the five year range. Uh, just a little bit of supply less than average has allowed the natural gas market to move to seven year highs. Okay. This is during the build period. What if we go through a cold winter uh, during the normal low period in February and March? What if things actually get tight as far as supplies go? What what could prices be then? And once again, to beat the dead horse, that's my fear. So uh, you got to you got to be thinking uh, about uh, energy prices as far as your. Uh, your budget plans, your your marketing plans, however you want to do it, because we've got the potential to see uh, energy prices change a lot over the next several years. Um, my next fear, um, interest rates. I, 
you know, obviously interest rates, this is 10-year treasury yields. They've been trending lower basically two-thirds of my life, I guess. Um, is that ever going to change? I, I don't know. I, I looked yesterday. I think we're up to $29 trillion in national debt. I don't really think that we can afford collectively as a society to uh, have – interest rates much higher. Um, I think uh, our interest expenditure is already the third or fourth highest budgetary item. It wouldn't really take a lot of strength in interest rates to make make that overtake uh, defense spending. So I I don't know. Uh, I mean, we seem to be in a climate of you know, ever increasing debt, and maybe it's not a big deal. But I guess I think it's a little bit funny when we get worried about um, uh, tapering, when we worry about potential rate hikes in 2023 or 2024 or some indefinite time in the future, when the trend is still clearly down as far as yields go, or, you know, treasury yields go. Um but, uh, and this will be a question, uh, you know, I really, I guess, have for the bankers. How much longer uh, can this last? Can we continue to flood uh, the world with uh, debt and uh, have demand for enough demand for that debt to keep uh, keep uh, interest rates on this downward uh, trajectory? Um, okay. Next one, this, Walt mentioned China and, and, and how important they are uh, to our, uh, well, to the world economy, to our ag economy. This is uh, the monthly Chinese yuan. It's um, versus the U.S. dollar. And so as the market goes down in this case, that's the stronger their uh, currency gets because it takes fewer of them to purchase U.S. dollars. And so what I want you to see is that for you know, years we complained about currency manipulation by the Chinese. Um, you know, they weren't letting their currency float. It wasn't fair, all those things. But anyway, notice what happened as they were uh, prepping for our uh, phase one trade deal. And suddenly the yuan gets uh, a lot more valuable and it makes it a whole lot easier for them to purchase our stuff. Uh, so far, that really hasn't changed. I think uh, I think today it's probably going to be the the second second strongest close um, since June. So uh, we we saw some more strength uh, through most of today, uh, but. You do have to worry about the the way they trade the currencies. So I watch this uh, pretty closely for indications that uh, Yuan's heading back down. Because if that is the case, it probably is an indication that the Chinese are ready to uh, not buy our stuff anymore, and that is a a big fear because. You know, those supply and demand tables we were looking at, I mean, we are just totally dependent on the Chinese uh, for taking our soybeans, 
taking the grain sorghum and last year uh, for taking uh, taking corn. Uh, they're also very, very important buyers of our cotton, uh, lately beef and pork. So we need them. And, and so uh, that's one of my fears is they, uh, they quit the buying. Uh, so that's, that's why I like to watch this currency chart. Um, next up, uh, we've got, uh, this is just an old chart. It's one of my favorites. It's the correlation between, uh, corn and the U S dollar index. It's, it's not perfect, but if you look at where the highs and the corn are, it's definitely not where the highs and the dollar are. It, it's generally the opposite of that. And so, uh, you know, for the last Several months we've been uh, trending sideways to lower on the on the dollar. We're we're cheaper than we were oh a year ago, but uh, you know it hasn't been any major move. But it's definitely helped that the dollar hasn't been uh, been shooting higher. Um, and then uh, this is uh, just just past history. I mean, we had a huge run up in the corn when uh, we got concerned about uh, tighter supplies. We've uh, since gotten more comfortable with those supplies. Uh, this is U.S. corn ending stocks. Uh, we've got things manageable. You know, 1.4 million or 1.4 billion bushels is it's okay. It's not too much by any means, and it keeps uh, things interesting uh, because it just means we're one one weather scare away from tight stocks and uh, very high prices again. Uh, Kansas City wheat has outperformed the corn here lately. Uh, it was a serious underperformer for a very long time, uh, where it was. That's why it got into the feed ration. If you recall, just a few months back, wheat was a lot cheaper than corn. It was. We had plenty of it, and what are we going to do with it? Well, we're going to feed it. Um, but we're getting the uh, U.S. wheat ending stocks under control. Um, it's been a while since we could say that. Uh, you know, over 850 billion or 850 million bushels of wheat in the U.S. is just too much. We just don't need it. Uh, we aren't exporting it as fast as we used to. We just can't get rid of it. But we're getting getting that under control, partially thanks to acreage declining. Well, for the <laughs> depending on how you do the chart, for 40 years, 50 years, we've been declining in wheat acreage, and um, that's uh, finally getting under control. And hopefully we can see some exports to keep it that way. Um, and then I included this uh, chart out of frustration, I guess. Uh, live cattle have kind of underperformed. I mean, we've had tremendous strength in the beef market. Packer margins have been astronomical um and the the live cattle market just doesn't participate in that uh cattle feeders have lost any any market power they may have ever had and um cattle you know kind of going the way of the hogs um uh, so much of production is is contracted there's barely a cash market and um i guess that's that's what we get because of that so that brings me to the end.
Yeah, that was pretty good information. I thought, you know, as you guys, both of you guys going over that, you know, part of what um, driven a lot of the commodity prices a little bit is just, you know, the wild fluctuation of COVID stuff, where there be uh, any throwing a hurricane in the port too. So how do you think, because, um, you know, you listen to talk about interest rates and the money and the Fed, you know, and they're, they call inflation transitory or that's what he thinks at this moment. Um, what's your guys' opinion on that? And will it actually, I mean, could you think, or is there a possibility to do the wheels of production all of a sudden kick in here in five, six months and everything kind of relents, do you think, on the uh, commodity side? Well, I mean, on on the energy side, we have proven that we can be the uh, top producer of crude oil in the world. So it's uh, it's possible. A lot of times, though, it takes some kind of a price spike to uh, really ramp up production. I think rig counts have been going up, so that's you know that's a indication that it's profitable to uh, drill for oil. So uh, yes, uh, yeah, we can. We can definitely produce enough to uh, push uh, energy prices back down. Uh, that's definite possibility. I guess my fear is, though, as the economy continues to recover, that uh, we may see a surge in demand that uh, um, outpaces the speed at which we can ramp up production. So I guess that'd be my my concern first, is that we end up seeing uh, demand improve first yeah well too you see i think you almost it'd be, i think it'd be pretty fair to say the climate to encourage those guys to drill is not positive uh, to be kind of politically correct i guess um, they're just not turned loose so i think you know even you see some of those big companies they're just not drilling like they normally would in this environment i don't think either so part of part of that is in in some of those key areas i mean when you get down in the Bakken, um, yeah, oil prices are there. They've built the infrastructure, but it's it's the pipelines to be able to get it away. And that's where the political environment right now is not allowing them to, to put those um, structures in. Um, to the hurricane coming across, yeah, there are definitely some export issues down in the center Gulf. Um, you know, 61% of the bean capacity or exports uh, were go out the center Gulf. Uh, 58% of the corn that's exported go out the center Gulf. All 14 exporting facilities were damaged, some more than others. Uh, but we are hearing today that, you know, Cargill, West Wego, West Wego is just south of New Orleans, just across the river. Uh, that facility's up and running. ADM has another facility up and running. Um, so we're starting to see some capacity come out. And there's never a good time for a hurricane to hit down there. But right at the end of the crop year was probably about as good a time as any because we don't have a ton of exports. So it'll be, you know, reserve the one that there are most of the pictures that were sent out. That one's going to take a while to rebuild. Uh, that one definitely had some substantial damage. Um, I wouldn't say there was a ton of overcapacity down in the Gulf, but um, yeah, I, I think we're going to get ramped back up. We'll see what Nicholas does, how much more rain it drops but it doesn't appear that they're going to have the structural damage that we saw before. One back to the question on the, on the natural gas uh, coming from a fundamental standpoint, you know, the, the Permian basins flaring off more 
they're they're flaring off 10 times what the Huguenin field produces in natural gas. So is there a fundamental cap that's going to keep natural gas from getting back to those exorbitant levels? Yeah, I, like I said, I think that we, we have the production, production capacity, but I think a little bit of that is uh, also logistics, getting... Uh, you know, gas pipelines from the Permian Basin to where you can store gas, uh, that kind of thing. I think, you know, as fast as some of that uh, oil production ramped up, they weren't necessarily prepared for the gas product production and, and, and gas was cheap. So flare, flare it off. That's been our solution for decades. Um, so yes, yeah, I, Markets go up and down. So, yeah, I think, like I said, we have the potential to see the uh, uh, production uh, ramp up and give us plenty, plenty of um, of supplies. Uh, one of the one of the things, though, you did mention the hurricanes and that's uh, uh, it is messing with Gulf production, Gulf transportation, that kind of thing. Uh, that's another factor that we've had lately. And then. Um, you know, as far as the long term, <laughs> I find it fascinating that uh, coal prices have been able to move up. Part of that is lack of production, uh, but um, we are seeing uh, more electric production shift from coal to natural gas. So I think we're building uh, that demand base a little bit for the for the natural gas for the for the long term. Yeah, it's because yeah, it has advantage of being the cleanest of the, I guess, of your carbon-based uh, production. So, you know, Brett, you had that chart. I thought it was a good, glad you had that chart, that long-term corn chart, because I think I remember first of last summer, you know, when we was getting closer to that $3 range on corn, and I think that's where a lot of guys were pretty nervous. And because and you had a pretty good, or could have made a really good demand case that, um there wasn't demand for ethanol or wouldn't be for gas or, or people were just kind of scared in general, I guess. And so then now, you know, when everything kind of flipped all of a sudden, now the guys are seeing $5 or even, I think I was looking, was it 2023 corn was up 470 still. Um, and so I think that's um, we, is that close. Uh, the 2023 corn in December, yeah, 470, uh, the 24, is it 437 um so if you look across that longer term chart 470 you know you may view that as uh, still an opportunity because it is way above 330 yeah and so i think so i guess as people you know we've had a lot of questions from producers like um well i think you and a part of it you know you brought in that fear question is a good one because okay i was at 330s like that would not work um and and like say on the flip side 470 probably can most of the time will 430 may not if some of those other input costs change so what um seeing that flip i guess either one of you which ones or have you guys seen customers kind of attack that problem or kind of try to solve it or or what's their thoughts oh we've not done any uh, 2024 hedging. Um, I've 
actually, you know, speculators. I've actually got long speculators in in the 2023. Um, <laughs> uh, just very, very long-term traders. Um, uh, we, we've we've not done too much really in the 2023, uh, but we've done, you know, with when the 2022 was well above five dollars, we've done quite a bit of edging there. You know, part of it, um, part of it though, has to do with cash flow. Um, you know, operating notes are only so big, and uh, it does make people very nervous to have two or three, you know, a large large percentage of two or three crops hedged and have have them go two dollars against them because it it eats up a ton of capital so um i think there's a desire to do something and uh at least try to put price floors under uh some of those better prices but at the same time they don't want to get carried away because they do you know 2008 was a long time ago but it also wasn't that long ago and you know it, it can create some cash flow problems that you've got to be aware of before you go hedge multiple years of crops. Yeah, there's some of those scars from back then you just don't get rid of, I don't think, either, because, yeah, it was quite a run. Um, so our, our recommendation is to be 25% sold out in the 2022 um, and preferably into the cash market where you have a good feeling of uh, what your basis might be. I mean, if you have a particular end user, that allows you to go ahead and lock that in uh, a feedlot, a dairy, a, something like that, where um, it is a competitive basis. Most of the elevators are not going to be that competitive uh, from a basis standpoint that far out. And so it depends on what that hedge to arrive would cost. But um, from a cash flow standpoint, that's why our recommendation is go ahead and lay that 25% off and into the cash market. And there, there is some bullish news out into that 2022. Uh, La Nina is setting up in the Pacific right now on a fairly decent probability that typically uh, from a statistical standpoint will affect the second crop Brazilian corn crop uh, more than any of the other South American crops, which very that's the one that they export and would most impact our uh, December 22 price. So there is a little bit of bullish news out there, um, but if you're betting on Mother Nature, that's why you're in farming. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, what you mentioned about basis and elevators. Um, I mean, uh, talk uh, talk about building bins, giving yourself some marketing flexibility. Um, it, if you don't have the ability to market straight from a combine to a dairy or a feedlot. Uh, but you have the uh, ability to deliver a little bit after harvest. It, it makes a can make a huge difference. It can give you so much flexibility. I think that's something. I mean, to talk about for your multi-year marketing. I think Lon Fromm, what two weeks ago when uh, Farm Journal did their uh, stint up there uh, from farms, he said he they make more money on their bins than they do on their land. So what do you guys, if you guys talk to customers, I guess how they make that decision that, yeah, 25% is enough or not enough or how much, how are they going about that, make that decision or how are you guys helping them make that? 
I mean, that's always a, it's a fun discussion from the standpoint, 25% of what 25% of APH 25% of last year's production. I mean, yeah, it's, it's what the person feels comfortable with. And it makes a big difference if you're talking, you know, hundred percent dry land or the guy that's hundred percent irrigated. I mean, there, there's a lot of production differences in there, but it's, it's taking, you know, a comfortable average. It could be APH or it could be a, uh, I got one farm that uses a five-year rolling average. Um, and that's where he thinks is most likely going to be and use 25% of that. So yeah, that, that's a discussion worth having, but um, when you're, when you're down below 50% or really below 75%, you know, some of that discussion is, is kind of muted. It's, it's more important just to be laying off the risk. Yeah, I, I, I agree. You, 25% of what is, is always a great question, but um, I, I think um, <clears throat> the, the actual, like you said, the actual number that you do maybe is a little less important than doing something sometimes. Um, having something hedged, something protected that is above break even. Um, I mean, this stuff goes up and down and uh, high prices can last a while, but they don't last forever. So, uh, you do have to try to take advantage of opportunities. And I think to an extent wheat is worse than corn because there's always seems to be a fear about dry land wheat production and what that's going to be. Maybe it's getting less. You know, it seems like our yields are jumping quite a bit from 10 and 15 years ago, and we've got tremendous yield potential, but people still don't want to get carried away with forward pricing or hedging uh, dry land wheat. Yeah, it does seem like you see a lot more dry land wheat production, just kind of wait and see what you have, and then you go market it, it seems like. And and uh, that is because that's a crop too that what well, I can't remember um, oh, from one of the insurance agents sent out emails like it's almost it's almost two dollars or better the crop insurance price is going to be starting off with, which is kind of a big help as well too. Like some part that's a little tougher too is like right now you're you know trying to go for next year's corn is like you don't have that insurance price because that's a little bit of a hedge in there, although not a probably super very good one I would say, but. Uh, makes things a little more interesting. Um, how do you, uh, one of the things I think, you know, Brett talked about margin calls and that's gets always the fun part. And so, um, so as long as Matt keeps lending us more money, we're probably good with margin calls, but a lot of it seems like the emotional part of that. I mean, how do, um, do you guys ever help just, how do you help guys kind of manage the positions, I guess, once you put them on, because that gets to be kind of a trick or, um, everybody's different. Um, I mean, everybody's completely different. Every, some people have to be right on the first day and are not very good at hedge it and forget it. And some people have open orders. They have numbers that they are happy with. They get filled. They pay the margins. They exit when they market the cash grain. I mean, it, everybody's a little bit different and um 
part of it, you, you just have to know your customer. You have to know which ones of them like to be more selective, which of them, which ones are more willing to take a hedge loss uh, for the opportunity to maybe reset it at a better level. Um, and, but before you get started, you do need to have some awareness, some conversation, some something, uh, so you have an idea of what, so both of you have an idea of what uh, cash flow needs might be and if they can be met. So um, you just, you have to have that conversation because uh it can it can get tight and it can really mess things up if you get uh, blown out of hedges at the wrong wrong time. So, um, I mean that, that can be a major major setback. So you just have to have that cash flow conversation, and that's why you know a lot of times you'll end up using options because you know you know what the cash flow uh, requirement is. It's a it's a fixed number and it's not going to change. I think it's spot on. You got to know your customer because every time, I mean, some guys can answer $100,000 margin calls every day, day after day, and it doesn't even phase them a bit. And other people lay awake at night and worrying about it. And if you're going to lay awake at night worrying about it, then probably going to the board is not the, the right place to be. But what a farmer always needs to remember, they're, they're net long. I mean, you may have had all of 2020 crops sold or 2021 or 2022 crops sold, but you're still long because you got 2023 and 2024 to sell. So you want the market to continue to, to go up and you want to blow through and have to answer margin calls because that actually is going to mean more dollars in your pocket long-term, yeah. but that still doesn't write the check every day or now ACH. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, they've kind of all pretty quick, those ACHs. They kind of get that money zapped out pretty fast. Oh, yes. No float. So, uh, Brett, you mentioned options. So, you know, we've had a few people like to use options. And, and um, of course, I think that the, what happens a lot of times, too, is they just don't buy the put. They also sell at least one call on top. I don't know. I've known a few guys sell more than one. Uh, so how does that... Um, and and I guess another question on top of that is like how do you should guys I guess manage that position I guess versus leave and forget. Um, well, like um, let's say we buy a put, sell a call. Um, you got to be aware that there is margin risk to that. There is some cash flow requirement. Um, have to be aware of that. Um, and then as far as how we manage that. Um, when you when you deal with like option spreads and multiple legs in option trading, you you get a lot of flexibility because I buy my put, I sell my call, the market goes down a bunch. Well, I can exit the short call at a profit. I can choose to take profit on my long put, or I can choose to sell an out of the money put and collect a little bit of time value that way uh, to cheapen my overall cost. And depending on the volatility of the market, I may be able to resell my short call again at some point and buy back that short put and oh, it get. I mean, 
we like to trade, I guess. Uh, that, that can get pretty fun uh, sometimes when there's a lot of volatility and you can uh, take your initial option position that costs 25 cents and whittle it down to five over time and improve your position that way. Um, but once again, um, if you're selling multiple calls, you better understand the risk in that. Um, that's if you want to be a speculator, we we do that too. But be be aware of the uh, be aware of the issues that can happen with that, because what people will not understand is that it's basically like a hedge at that uh, higher level. And if they do understand it, well, it's just fine. Uh, you're going to collect whatever you get out of the cash market plus that option premium. It, it's a great marketing tool, but you have to understand that you have unlimited risk for a, uh, a pretty limited reward. Well, on top of that, too, I think you almost have to certain strategies work better in when markets are volatile and some work worse, I guess. So some of those would be, you know, if the market's making well, jumps up and down, then that can affect how, especially if you're selling multiple calls, I think you can get a little... Yeah, and, and one of one of the problems with options in general uh, when you're buying them is, you know, we've had a definite increase in volatility in the grain market. So as the volatility increases, the price increases. And so, um, you know, maybe you don't want to spend 50 cents on an at-the-money put option. <laughs> it just seems like a, a, a tremendous expense. And so, um, that will sometimes encourage people to uh, head for the futures market and hedge that way or uh, get creative in trying to whittle down that cost by selling other options or, you know, if, if they don't want to deal with the expense, um, maybe that is the time they head for the, the cash market and uh, forward price or do HDAs or whatever they want to do in the cash market. And sometimes that's the best, that's the best approach. And one strategy this year, you were talking about the insurance price uh, with the subsidies that's in the crop insurance, you know, that could be used as a synthetic put looking at what your percentage um, insured. That's something you may want to talk to your insurance agent about as maybe increasing moving from a, a 65 to a 70 or from 70 to 75 with these higher prices, that, that might be a cheaper uh, put strategy. It may also work too. It's like, you know, we look at how dry it is outside too. It may not hurt that little higher percents as well. Kind of a good combo there, but uh, Matt, I haven't let you talk at all yet. So what do you think of what, listen to those guys, what are some things if, if he's run into things with customers, what's kind of the biggest pluses or minuses or things you think would help them? Yeah. Uh, well, I was going to give a shout out to Brett for giving rhodium it's due. You know, I know you've said all along, it's the underdog of commodities. So I'm glad he did that. <laughs> yeah. I don't no, think uh, about where on the chart, elemental chart is rhodium. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So no, seriously, they talked about one of the things I was going to mention, Chris, was the emotion, you know, Brett talked about fear and greed and we've probably all been in those positions, whether we're hedging or trading or even buying stocks when it's not going your way, how do you handle it? And I think he said it correctly. Everybody handles it differently. 
you know, so everybody's got to have their conversation, at least from a lender perspective, you know, we, we don't like surprises. So I think it's good as early, early and often you can communicate what your intentions are. And then we've kind of seen the most successful people is they're consistent in their plan. You know, they got this plan and they try to stick to it. You know, everybody's going to change and have to pivot, but um, you know, if you're going to do one thing this year and next year you do the total opposite, it seems inevitably you're going to be wrong twice, you know? So, um, so yeah, and then like um, one of them mentioned is everybody's cash flow structure is different, you know? So we're all growing the same commodities, but we all have much different operations um, from break-evens to cash flow break-evens to, you know, debt levels. So we encourage people to have those conversations, not only with their bankers, but with Rhett and Walt or whoever they're using to make sure everybody's on the same page and have the same expectations. So, yeah. no, you guys covered everything I was going to talk about, Chris. Okay. Well, I got the right next person, didn't we? Um, yep. One thing we alluded to a little bit is input costs. Um, have you guys seen people manage some of that? I don't know. Unfortunately, maybe they ought to trade glyphosate on the futures. It might be. Uh, well, how big a market we can make in that. But um, so what about guys managing? I mean, sometimes, well, I've heard stories too that you can't get really bids. And I'll, I'll start rumors here, uh, bids for fall fertilizer at all right now. And part of the issue is maybe can they get it? Can they make it? Whatnot. Um, so what are you guys seeing there and how's the best way? I guess, should, should guys do some things in tandem, right? So if I can lock in some anhydrous or whatever fertilizer you're using, do you go hit the grain at a similar time or what's your thoughts there? My thoughts, anytime that you are making that fertilizer purchase, you need to consider, is that a profitable level and lay off an equivalent amount of, uh, either in the futures or a hedge to arrive to lock in that margin. Cause anytime you can be profitable, you need to be locking it in. The production agriculture, we're going to move back below the cost of production. It's inevitable. We've done it throughout history. So um, anytime you can lock it in, uh, play the long game. I, I think, yeah, as, as we keep saying here, everybody's a little bit different, but uh, I, I feel like the better producers um, are are definitely following that plan. If they lock in a lot of fertilizer, um, they are frequently protecting price on uh, on, on on a lot of uh, grains. Um, I don't see that so much with fuel, uh, but definitely when I when they tell me <clears throat> they're getting ready to contract uh, some. Uh, fertilizer, uh, part of that conversation ends up being uh, give me an option strategy and tell me what the futures are and I'll make a decision from there. So, yeah, when when I, I think that when the better producers are locking in fertilizer, they, they have a tendency to lock in some grain as well. And really, there's not much. I'm trying to think. One time you almost get some people would try to use natural gas as a way to head, but you really can't do that, can you? I mean, it's really disconnected. No. Um, oh, got to rewind. I don't know. 25 years ago, maybe you could do that. It's not the case anymore at all. So, yeah, yeah. it probably gives more to what a farmer more to pay. <laughs> but yeah. 
it, it's just not correlated very well at all anymore. Yeah. Okay. Well, guys, I don't have any questions on the deal. Is there anything else you guys can think of real quick you'd like to throw out to or anything's thoughts, Matt, or do you have anything you think of elsewise? Or... Okay, Walt, tell okay. us. The... So, oh, go ahead, Brett. Oh, I was going to ask ask my question on interest rates. How are we going to stay here forever? I mean, what what's the banking community feel? I mean, what? Oh, wow. It feels like $3 corn to me is what it feels like. Interest rates as low as they are. Yeah. But, uh, you know, one thing you look right. at that chart, you know, I think is, uh, I think you're right, it's a long-term downtrend. And to me, it's part of the uh, imper you know, the way our economy can, um, I'm trying to think the term they all use, productivity. You know, I think we're just so much more efficient at how we can produce things. So you can always run on less margin. So to me, that's that, but it's part of that trend. But part of it is, you know, that 10-year treasury yield pretty much is, I would say, is pretty much directly correlated to people's home values and because it's what they can get that mortgage for. And I think uh, you're kind of right there, Brett, that uh, uh, they can't let it get too high. So, of course, I think, yeah, I hit new, come back down today, but uh, I guess 127 or 130 on 10-year treasury beats the German boon or whatever at negative yield. So, and uh, I think maybe I'd take our credit a little more than that. Well, I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> so, yeah, but no, I take our why? credit. I mean, world, negative so. yields. I mean, is that ever going to be a thing here? I mean, not real negative yields, but like, are, is the government going, is our government going to issue negative yield treasuries? I, I don't know. I don't know that either. I sure hope not. I don't think it'd be a good sign if we did um, for anything. Right. Too. And then you run into some deals. I think there's so much currency differences. You know, I think it's hard to, because, you know, people move as like, I'd rather have dollar denominated assets or maybe they're going to cryptid, crypto type assets to, um, or do different things that way. So to try to protect the value of their money. But uh, it gets kind of interesting, I think, you know, the whole world. And I don't know, it depends. They, um, it's kind of concerning too. I think was it the House Committee Budget Committee Chair talking about oh I can we can print all the money we need no big deal. It's like well that's kind of a big right. deal. So uh, uh, yeah that's yeah not good. So um, um, in addition to the rhodium, Matt, my my favorite one right now is zinc, um, and that's because. We're, we're almost getting to the point where the melt value on a penny is almost a penny. Um, so that's the next one to watch, Matt. Watch the price okay. of zinc and see if we can get a penny up to a penny. Wow. All right. I'll be watching. Now we're have a real coin shortage again because everybody's be melting their pennies, right? So. Well, okay. So old pennies are already worth like 2.9 cents and nickels are worth about six. So when when are we going to quit producing those things there you go that's a good point well zinc too uh -huh. you know that's one of the big things for your uh immune system right so maybe that's driving some of that you gotta keep healthy yeah yep so people are take more than what they need probably so it always drives up that price so 
All right, guys. Um, I don't have any more questions popping up, so I appreciate your time. Why don't you, Walt, if somebody want to get a hold of you, how's the best way to get a hold of you? Pretty easy. My phone number is 620-544-3400, so 3400. All right. And uh, Brett, how's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, visit 620-275-4100 all right well i appreciate you guys spending the time as always you know our goal is to try to help you guys hey we really appreciate everybody joining us today on the podcast and uh i uh, really appreciate brett and walt and matt for spending the time to go over things with us and uh and one of the things that i thought of later is always always think these things as they end right so you know those like brett and both of them well both mentioned there's a lot of uncertainty of what input prices could do versus you know but we're seeing these fairly good commodity prices so how do i make that decision you know a lot of it uh we have a value around here at the bank we call it, everything is figure outable so we can sit down with you you come one of our branches you know johnson syracuse ulysses garden city and we can sit down with you and kind of run through uh, costs and know what has to happen in your break-even costs. So maybe if we go through and calculate it, um, you know, because like we're looking at like 70% of your expenses maybe are fairly stable. That won't change very much. But then we have that other 30. It could be fairly volatile, you know, where it'd be fuel cost, um, fertilizer, seed, chemicals that we don't have as much control over. So let's, but we can also quantify that too, right? How high, you know, today's corn price how high can fertilizer get? How can high diesel get? And how does it fit in your operation? So make sure if you have those questions or need help doing that, contact us at the branch and one of the branches and we can help you out, figure that out. So, um, cause there's, um, you know, one of the challenges we have is this, uh, continue fighting margins, you know, on uh, farm products. And they're usually pretty good at trying to take it all from us. And so let's make sure and, and do the best we can at analyzing and uh, coming with the answer that works for you because it's not the same for every farm. So with that, you guys have a great week and we'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening to DreamMaker, making dreams come true. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on social media at FNB Windmill and online at fnb-windmill.com. Heard a topic that could enrich someone else's life too? Be sure to share this podcast with friends and family and check back regularly for new episodes or subscribe so you never miss a show. See you soon.